Welcome back, everybody, to our special monthly version of the Brubble panel, where we look at the top headlines from the past month, the, the most entertaining stories, the most you know tumultuous moments, the, the most edge-of-your-seat-frilling events, because, you know, October was somewhat of a frilling month. Maybe not as frilling as September, but still frilling enough. And to help me dissect this month, like we did last month, we're joined with some familiar faces if you caught the first episode. Let's go around the table and introduce ourselves. Let's start you, Julian. You are closest to the camera, I suppose. Hi, everyone. My name is Julien Hoez. I am a member of Renaissance, the uh, French governing party of Emmanuel Macron, if I should add. And I'm also <laughs> a political analyst and a geopolitical analyst who works across the EU and the wider world. And you might recognize him from his recent attacks on Shoals, right? <laughs> yeah, I had some very big things to say about him on Algeria yesterday. So, uh. so well, we'll see if that plays out today. So a little teaser for us to get into it. To go to a more humble man, I would say. Is, or is that too insulting, Zhao? No, 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 it's perfect. I think <laughs> it's, it's, to yes, mm-hmm. it's, 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 it's perfectly. Greetings to you all, guys. Again, to my fellow panelists and again to the millions listening from home. Uh, my name is Juan Pontes. Uh, I'm a policy assistant at TG Grow European Commission, and I'm currently dealing with the Recovery and Resilience Facility and with the European Semester. I'm just really hyped for our discussion today. <laughs> Are you as hyped as uh, Jao Nico? I would say I'm even more hyped. Um, Oof! Start with the Showing off the yes. the, the commission uh, like superiority here, that, yeah. that org just chart. A bit, just, a bit, just a bit. So to add on uh, on Joao, my name is Nikos Theodosiadis. Uh, I'm from Greece. Uh, I work at the European Commission in the Secretariat General in the unit uh, that prepares the briefings for the president and the vice presidents. I I work pretty much on almost all all policy topics. At least I should be prepared to prepare briefings on all policy topics. But uh, I also specialize in Greece and Cyprus within within our unit. So that's that's pretty much a short introduction. Yeah, some uh, hot topics, I suppose, uh, in more ways than one. But uh, yeah, I myself, as I always forget to introduce myself, but I'm Simon. I am originally Canadian, hence my less European accented voice. But I hold a Dutch passport and. I claim Dutch citizenship, so who knows? I work for Microsoft, so again, I'm a bit more of the the person out, I suppose, here. But I I, I provide some equipment for us to do the podcast, so that's why I'm invited, I suppose. You're hosting. You're the whole reason we're here. So there we go. Mm. There we go. Well said. <laughs> and tying back to this month and the topics at the table this month. I mean, quickly around the table, what was the biggest issue this month? Because when I was writing up the script. I was a bit, you know, I resorted it a few times, you know, I, I, I changed topics around, but, but what do we think for each of us was the biggest issue this month? Um, it was quite a complicated, I would say, geopolitical month. There is a lot of things going on in a lot of places. We had the developments uh, very surprising uh, in, in China, not so much about mm-hmm. uh, Xi Jinping's third uh, term, more in, in the way that things went down and just hearing from uh, high-level retired, mostly military officials that uh, China may try to speed up its um, its geopolitical aggression with uh, certain neighboring countries. Uh, the war in Ukraine took a, into the ugly, but it also shows the desperation, I think, of Russia and Kremlin, the Kremlin specifically, and Putin's regime. Um, and then we also had uh, a lot of developments on energy. Yeah. Um, the EU uh, set out two proposals, 
one on the 8th, I think, and one on the 16th of, uh, of October. They're still not set into stone. They're still in, let's say, a little bit, some of them in the roadmap phase. But uh, overall, a lot of intertwined uh, developments. And we haven't even touched on the midterms in and the I mean, US, which are coming. We will well. give our final predictions, as you know, the funner portion of uh, this podcast towards the end. But uh, I guess from, from the other two at the other ta- side of the table, biggest issue of the month? Most keen to look at? Most fun to follow? Well, we have a lot of topics to follow. As we do. Because as already pointed out, and they are very interesting from every side and their perspective. Energy-wise, we already approached last time, and uh, of course the Ukrainian conflict is also, is also very pretty much present, but also the initiative, the European political community, which is something that uh, I think we should really discuss, because can it be something for the future, or can it be something that is going to be left to, to be forgotten? Yeah, and I think we're going to spend quite a nice chunk of time on that towards yeah. the middle, so I mean, if you're watching on YouTube, look at that bookmark if you want to get into the juicy part, but... Uh, Julian, any other final thoughts before we jump into uh, Ukraine? I think it was a geopolitically complicated month for the EU. I mean, you have the infighting, obviously, between Germany and France over some geopolitically strange decisions by Germany, who apparently haven't learned from the lessons of Russia. Uh, the uh, big power play in China is going to have an impact on how things turn out in Europe, including the change of the main diplomat that was sent. But on top of that, there was all the uh, a very certain speech, which we may or may not uh, touch upon later, and also the EPC, which, in my view, may potentially be something that takes off the European neighborhood policy and replaces it if things keep going. And that is not always a positive for some people looking inwards. No. So I think we're definitely going to have a nice time tackling to the European political community. But... Just by, you know, geopolitical significance, Ukraine has still been top of mind. And Ukraine still is the thing that we're all following, the the biggest issue of this month, undoubtedly. And we've seen some interesting developments. And, I mean, I remember waking up one uh, weekday morning and seeing my Twitter explode almost as much as a certain bridge. What do we think the, the recent events in Ukraine, what do they say about the picture in Ukraine? What do they tell us about the conflict going on there? Um, it has been more symbolic than anything else, at least in my perspective, the blowing off of the, of the bridge, because it doesn't achieve any ta- tactical gain nor any strategic gain. I mean, I, I would beg to differ there, because it, mm, it's one of the main well. supply routes right into Crimea. But the thing is, directly to Crimea, yes, but they can still ferry it, and they can still use the railroad. So yeah. they can still, it, is not, it does not so. clearly endanger Russian position uh, in, the, in the South Theater. That's what I mean. I would disagree. Purely because now, and this is part of the reason why the the Russian military command is now pulling back its forces or preparing for a retreat from Kherson in some ways. They're still going to try to fight it out, but this is why they're pulling back a lot. They, they're not able to adequately supply their forces in Zaporizhia or in Kherson anymore because a lot of it came through Crimea. And now that they can't, and they're using pontoon bridges, which are mm-hmm. very easy to hit with high mounts, it's they are not they are not as um, as that easily to to supp- to be ready to supply the, the troops. That's yeah. true. But uh, still, they can manage. And and from the last reports that I've been gathering, uh, they still managed to actually make some part of the bridge uh, operable. Yeah, of course. So that's what I mean. 
it can be more symbolic than actually a turning point or anything. But they can get small supplies through, like standard supplies, maybe small munitions or anything. But that was the bridge that was transporting all of the uh, heavy armaments, the artillery, mm-hmm. the tanks, the APCs, and all this thing, which is where the problem comes because. Russia's starting to is still losing a lot of equipment on the front line, and that's getting captured and turned around. Mm-hmm. And if they can't bring enough forwards, which is why they're now having to go to Belarus and then around some of the front lines in Ukraine, mm-hmm. it's it complicates things, and it means that their planning has to take a horizon that's maybe an extra week or two long, which is hard to plan for. The three-day plan yeah. <laughs> will take a few weeks extra. Um, <laughs> But I mean, okay, the, the bridge has uh, two. Um, the, the operation at the bridge has two two aspects to it. Number one, it's very clearly the the symbolic uh, effect. Ukraine has been able to hit so deep behind enemy lines, behind what uh, Ukraine consider, uh, sorry, what Russia considers quote unquote to be its own territory, and not just. Uh, 20, 30 kilometers from the front line, but deep into the front line. Number one, I think uh, we need to recognize um, the operational capabilities of the Ukrainian uh, special forces and um, and acknowledge the fact of... Uh, I, I really look forward uh, to reading about all these uh, missions and uh, maybe hopefully read books uh, from uh, Ukrainian officials and people at the front line about these things because they're truly fascinating from an op- operational standpoint. But then you also have um, the more tactical advantage. It it did not completely set the bridge uh, out of um, out of operation, and insofar I do agree with you, Joao. However, um, it did take one of the lanes. Uh, out of commission, it took time to to replace the other ones, and it's already adding to the massive bottlenecks, logistical bottlenecks, yeah. which have been the major issue mm-hmm. of uh, of Russia from the beginning of the war. And we're just what I'm slowly seeing, which is also why we're hearing these reports uh, f- from only from Russia. To be very very clear about uh, the potential use of. Uh, of uh, dirty bombs and so on and so forth, mm-hmm. all of which have been discredited internationally and nationally in uh, in Ukraine. And uh, you you see that Russia is really in uh, with its back against the wall, or, or as we would say uh, in more boxing terms, uh, their backs are against the ropes. They know this, and uh, they are um, they're trying they're trying to wage a very very hybrid form. Of warfare, they have uh, the the new Shahid uh, um, drones that they procured illegally from from Tehran, from Iran. Which uh, also, in case we needed any more proof of uh, the kind of uh, regime that operates there, it's very very clear that these these are quite quite clearly drones that are that have one person one one purpose to to bomb the infrastructure, which is overwhelmingly uh, civilian energy infrastructure, uh, unarmed civilians, uh, buildings, and so on and so forth, as we've seen in Kiev and and in cities all across Ukraine. They're also pulling out citizens from from Kherson, which um, is very... (laughs) But it's worrying, because they, on one side, they come out and they say... um, they, as in the, the the Russian regime, that 
uh, there are reports of dirty bombs and this and that, which obviously is a, is a blatant lie. And then they, they pull forces from from Kherson. There are reports about the possibility of, uh, of a dam that's protecting uh, the city of Kherson. There are, uh, I, I mean, the Russian regime has not uh, hidden its... Uh, uh, it's uh, the fact that it possesses nuclear capabilities for for fear of saying something uh, worse. And but, but I ask, is this just a sign of being more desperate? And I think that's the question that is on European minds. It is is this a sign of desperation? And where does desperation lead? Exactly. So wh- why is he pulling civilians out from, from one of the major, biggest uh, cities in in Ukraine, why is he engaging in all this warfare? And this goes to show that the explosion at the Kerch Bridge really, in my opinion, pissed off uh, mm. Putin on a personal level because this was a project that he championed uh, because it it was meant to be the connection right between yeah. uh, the Russian territory and 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 Crimea. And yet we see one of his prize uh, uh, prize infrastructural projects uh, complete in in shambles by uh, by an incredibly bold and quite successful operation from uh, from the Ukrainian forces. And it also an operation which, I, which, from what I've read, was impossible to pull off without Western intelligence sharing. So it does show that we are making some efforts in this war. And to kind of wrap up Ukraine, are we doing enough in this war? Should we be doing more? And should we actually be afraid of that desperation that Putin seems to be undergoing? Xiao? Uh, actually, just touch a little bit on the previous topic um, on the withdrawal for some for, um, for the, some Russian forces in Kherson. I I do not think that they actually have to to do with the situation on the bridge. Uh, of course, we all know it's well known about the, the Russians' logistical problems since the beginning of the war. That's clear. Of course, having blown the bridge f- puts a further strain on that, but they can easily resolve that, or at least can find alternatives for that. And on the Kherson Kherson withdrawal, uh, first, militarily is very difficult to defend because they have a a natural barrier, the Dnieper, and Kherson city is on the western side, so it's on, quote-unquote, Ukrainian side. So it makes sense from a military point of view to go back. And second, and Nikos touched on that uh, very well, and actually is one of my fears regarding this conflict nowadays, which is the, the nuclear power plant um, that is whose water, the water that goes to the power plant comes from the Nova Kakova Dam, so the, ba- the dam that bridges on the on that area, and they are fearing that anything could happen there, and uh, of course flood the region and kill uh, around thousands of, of uh, civilians there, but also the possible implications that it could have on the nuclear power plant of Zaporizhia. This is the the most worrying thing, at least for me. Yeah, Julian, do you expect anything to happen throughout the course of November? Um, or I is mean, it a, a slow winter? November is going to be where we're going to see a lot of pushes. November and early December, while everybody's trying to consolidate positions ahead of the winter, because when the winter comes, it's going to be very hard. Mm. I think the Ukrainians will have slightly less difficulty fighting in the winter than the Russians, because the Russians already have hot... Their conscripts are not being given any weapons or equipment. They're just being thrown in as meat in the grinder. And even their main soldiers aren't doing too hot. So if you have a big uh, victory for the Ukrainian side in Kherson, 
which I think is more likely than not at this point, then you may see another frenzied push into uh, the south of Ukraine, taking more territory from the Russians. And even in Luhansk and Donetsk, where they're supposed to be the strongest, mm-hmm. they're having a lot of difficulties. It's why the Russians are positioning some forces just north of Kiev to uh, distract. But I think the threats of a nuclear attack by the Russian state is still overblown even though that potential of a false flag dirty bomb attack is there but i would still say that a false flag dirty bomb attack is still a nuclear attack yes no but this is what i mean yeah but going back to the dam issue there is a big problem where if they're taking an absolute beating Mm -hmm. out there then they've already rigged parts of the dam to blow Mm. they've already got Mm -hmm. quite a lot of explosives rigged up mines and everything so if they trigger an explosion they take out at least let's say, the top portion of the dam, which will do a lot of damage and cause a lot of flooding. Mm. And I think that's more of a threat than nuclear attack at this point because they'll see it as the easiest way to do as much damage as mm. possible yeah. ahead of the winter. And of course, the attacks on critical infrastructure that yes. they, have been, yeah. they have been setting into place uh, that will, can foresee like a very, very difficult winter for the Ukrainians by now. Yeah. Yeah. And they will have a difficult winter, and I really hope that EU will pull through, support them any means necessary. But us at home, is our winter going to be that difficult? And here I am trying to transition nicely into energy security, which I think is also one of the underlying debates. I feel like it's lost some of its urgency over the course of the last month, two months, maybe because we've actually been doing kind of well in this front. But we've seen a few new, I mean, Macron has been touting his, uh, his uh, energy price gaps, uh, I believe, uh, caps, sorry, not gaps. Um, there's also been the, the, the request from the council ministers to voluntarily reduce 10% of emissions. What are we thinking about these energy crisis measures? How, how do we think those will actually, how successful do you think they'll actually be? Will they actually tackle the crisis somewhat? So let's start for, from the, the basic of the, the amount of gas storage that we have. So this is as of yesterday. This is 93.8% with a daily increment of 0.18%. 14 countries are between uh, filling levels of 90 and 100. I I can name them here, but uh, not to waste time. Um, I think in terms of uh, gas storage, we're on a very, very good good level. Uh, But this also consolidates the, um, the narrative that this winter will not be as difficult as uh, the one that comes after, so True. so next year. And uh, this is where I think the measures that we take now really, really need to, to take into consideration, and I think they are. So um, one of the emergency measures, adop- not adopted, but proposed for a council regulation uh, on the 6th of October will include, so what you said, the 10% uh, power demand uh, uh, reduction, um, introduction of a temporary revenue cap at 180 euros per megawatt hour um, support for for customers and this is something that also the the next generation EU uh, tools so the recovery and resilience plans are really really important because also uh, in parallel to them we also have the European uh, Social Climate Fund yeah. which is specifically designed to help uh, uh, to help consumers the final final consumers. And on top of that, we have the solidarity contributions, so the so-called inframarginal revenues uh, from the fossil fuel companies, which is unacceptable, I think, uh, and it's quite understood socially 
that uh, the companies are making uh, so much money at the expense of all European uh, citizens. And obviously, like any member of society, uh, they, they need to uh, to make sure that uh, that they cover their so-called fair share uh, in this fight. And I mean, as much as I recognize the commission people sitting beside me here, and those are great measures, there has been tension about whether these are the right measures to be taken, even within the 27 member states. And one of the big ones I've been seeing is, for instance, the German-French rivalry on this end. And Julian, do you have any thoughts, any explanations on, on how this is shaping out? I mean, currently... So before I get to the whole Macron-Schultz thing... Go for we, it, yeah. We're getting quite lucky because the autumn's been very mild. And it's been quite warm. And so that's helped. And I think... There is lots of optimism everywhere about getting through the winter relatively well. The energy saving measures are doing quite a good job of saving lots of energy waste. And like you said, the gas storage is good. I mean, I think in France, we're actually having the problem where we may actually have, or in e- the EU even, by this end of December, we may actually have too much gas <laughs> waiting around. And there's even problems where there's backlogs in the docks around Europe. So this is an issue. But we have a problem with the let's say, German behavior on this. And sorry to anybody who follows me on Twitter too, because I've been hammering on this for two weeks now. But we have the issue where the German state basically decided to subsidize the entire, that sector, with 200 billion euros. And the issue with that is that it also brings into effect, one, um, lack of willingness of the German state to actually work with us, Mm-hmm. And the rest, I mean, the EU27 have rule. But also there was even a complication when it came to state aid rules, where everybody's trying to play by the rules, everybody's trying to not go too far into their support for the industry to avoid breaking these and get, you know triggering the uh, unfair advantage clause for local businesses. I mean, even France, who's typically known for heavy-handed market controls, not market controls, but market <laughs> engagements, it's has been holding back and doing a good job out of solidarity. And then Germany decided, as we'll talk later, to just say, you know what, we know best, we're going to do what we want, and we'll just do it on our own. And that has an implication because it gives Hungary and Poland and other states a reason to not do this. Yeah. you know, Because I've seen Orban was praising Germany and yeah. saying, look at the example they're setting forth. We should be this, uh, you know, hesitant when it comes to these audacious French measures. I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but... But this yeah. is the problem, is that it then gives fuel to the fire that is, and let's be honest, a Eurosceptic anti-integration movement that doesn't want to work with everybody. And that shouldn't be coming from Germany mm. at all. Yeah. Um, my perspective on that, I mean, I'm pro uh, the EU and the 27 member states member states to actually be uh, um, be capable of making a cap for the prices but there are some uh, logic into some German, German arguments when they say for instance if you have a, a gas cap price to the price you need to have a specific mechanism in order for you to be able to go to the market and buy it and also not to get the, the, the supplies from the market or get the, the people that are selling, the, the companies that are selling the, the, the gas to actually be able to want it for you to sell. So what they say is, um, if you have this, this, uh, this cap, you need to have both this mechanism for controlling the, the, the prices of the market 
And uh, also, you have to, to make it compulsory, the saving of energy. Because if you have lower costs on energy, what will mean for the population is that most likely they will not care about saving the gas. True. Which means the gas will go faster. Which means that it will put further strains on our reserves or on the prices on the market. So on that sense, they are kind of right. So th- this should be at least a minimum agreement between the 27 on uh, making it compulsory, at least energy savings, because some of them, they are 5%, if I'm not mistaken, from the last package, 5% on the peak hours and 10% as um, not non-mandatory. Mm-hmm. True, but Absolutely. there's a problem. And I'll just jump in here because Germany's actions brought the prices down anyway. That was the whole point. And they were doing that to bring the prices down in Germany. So the issue is that gas is now, and energy is just cheaper in Germany, and only Germany. And they also... According to Breton, he said it last week, I think, uh, the price, the gas prices are actually climbing down. They are, so, yes. So when it comes to wholesale importation, which is true. But I don't buy the argument that having a price cap is worse than subsidizing the entire industry in one member state only because yeah because that undermines the single market exactly yeah. and it means just one country is getting the big benefit and which is one very big country so they're yeah. C- yeah. quite capable of undercutting pretty much uh, like how can for instance a country like malta outbid a country like uh germany okay. the simple germany, answer yeah. is it yeah, can't. it's impossible which so, is uh, why so it's maybe, so maybe maybe the solution should also go on a sense that we could buy a common common share of gas and lately, politically distributed. So maybe that could actually be an option. Commission proposal on 18th yeah. of October, mm-hmm. uh, joint gas purchasing to negotiate better prices. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what uh, what uh, what we are trying to do. Uh, now it's also in the hands a little bit of the EU27. Mm-hmm. Um, but together with, with the infrastructure projects that come with Repower EU, the energy corridors, the, the, the gas infrastructure, um, and us working together, uh, we can mitigate this. It's, um, I mean, completely different uh, sector, but uh, the concept is apl- pretty much the same and applies for the vaccines. Mm-hmm. Mm. Because it was like, okay, so do we go by 27 different bids and 27 different negotiations? That uh, So obviously the richer countries would be able to outbid the the um, the poorer countries and so on and so forth and then obviously you, you develop not only a two-speed but a multiple-speed mm-hmm. Europe. It, it, this is exactly the same problem that we are that we are faced with uh, today. And as citizens, we should not back down uh, from um, seeking the solutions that are best for us and the solutions that are best for all of us. If we really care about uh, solidarity and if we really care about our society, is for us to go about this the 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 joint way and and to seek solidarity on on this very European problem. No, I, had, I agree. I agree with that. We need to take those those small steps first. Yeah, incremental. Yeah. I agree because yeah. also um, sometimes uh, I mean when people speak, uh, especially Eurosceptics, when they speak about Europe, they're like, oh, Europe didn't do this or Europe didn't do that or well, number one, please understand the concept of competencies. Um, number two, please understand the the relationship that exists between the Commission, the Parliament, and the Council, and the process that goes about uh, uh, creating this uh, 
this um, either legislative or non-legislative proposals, whatever they may be, even recommendations, because it's really important to understand if if we want something that everyone will implement. Because what's the point of having the most uh, uh, the most flashy law if no one is willing to implement it, and on top of that, yeah. no one is capable of enforcing it? On that point, then. On the EU Council summit that happened a few days ago, where these proposals were looked at, where they were, you know, and I emphasize only looked at, their main conclusion was, we'll talk about this again in November. Will we see any action in November? Do we expect this to resolve itself? Yeah, I mean, the issue was that the discussions got too technical and too difficult. It was, it was you know, it's similar reasons why they cancelled the annual Franco-German summit is that they physically couldn't get a uh, a resolution after that summit because they were too far apart. And it was the same thing with the council summit. They had to, they basically kicked the Tokoriba, which is the uh, committee of permanent representatives that is mostly doing half the work of the council. And they had to get the ambassadors to take care of the discussions and the ministers because it got too complicated. And if you have, I mean, let's flash back to the discussions on COVID and COVID restrictions and the response. We don't want to have another summit where you've got Orban uh, throwing a tantrum. Mark Rutte comes in with his book on Chopin because he doesn't want to listen to Macron talk with Merkel about how we need a common response, you know. Uh, that was bad for the EU's image. Mm-hmm. And this would have been equally as bad because you would have had the frugals fighting with the... The Eurosceptics fighting with the fiscal doves and it would have been chaotic. And we don't need that kind of distraction right now. So, I mean, it was the right move, in my opinion. But, I mean, you do mention it would have been bad for the EU's image. But we're seeing the two major European powers basically disagree on everything lately. Like, and I, I want to draw this a bit more to the Schultz-Macron uh, relationship because we've seen them argue about defense. We've seen them argue about energy. We've seen them argue about China. Where does this all lead? What are we seeing here? Are we seeing a breakdown within the EU internally in this alignment? Or am I making this look too too damaging, too, too dire? Um, the issue with the Franco-German thing, and I'll say straight up, it's going to get resolved. You know, the grown-ups. The issue is that, firstly, you have the German coalition who is being pulled in every direction by every party inside. Half of them don't want to work with each other and are just there out of uh, expediency. But... The big issue with this is you've got, we managed to, and I'll say we because France was very heavy-handed in this and managed to convince Germany somehow. We got Germany involved in the discussions on strategic autonomy, and that worked. <laughs> we got the Germans on board for the strategic compass, and they were usually against both of these. And a lot of this relies on us focusing on being Europeans, sourcing from Europe, and working between Europeans to fund our militaries and, well, you know, equip our militaries. Germany decided that it wasn't really that interested and it would go to the US and Israel, which is it's allowed to do that, but it goes against its commitments that have been made politically. On top of that, you have the energy issue where they're trying to do whatever on their own and ignoring literally everybody else who's saying we need to work together on this. And on top of that, you've got the German government cancelling and being very disrespectful to the French delegation in, in general. You had a meeting cancelled with Prime Minister Elisabeth Bourne last month or earlier this month. But they had school holidays. Come on. (laughs) Children can wait. You know, they'll grow old. But uh, they they cancelled the meetings and then Scholz claimed to be sick, so cancelled a replacement phone call or a video call. 
then appeared by video conference in a conference where he announces 200 billion euro funding for the sector, blowing mm-hmm. off the French government entirely, then repeatedly cancelled meetings, cancelled the summit in their own words because of school holidays, and then on top of that, just really refusing to cooperate in general. And then you've got the China thing. The port in Hamburg, which has been sold, 24.9%, I think we mentioned before the podcast, going to to China without inviting anybody, whereas the commission, the council, and the French states always included Germany in plans to go to China. You've basically got a... I mean, I'm going to say this quite honestly. You've got a Germany that's acting like Merkel's still around, and it's Germany from 2007, mm. where before the crisis, where it was the strongest power, where it was a global uh, financial superpower, and it could do these things. It's a very French statement there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it implies something. French, huh? but, uh, <laughs> I'm just I'm saying for our international <laughs> listeners, you know. <laughs> Any thoughts on this as well? As we've seen this unfold, uh, I'm gonna take on the comments that Nick was, was giving. Um, I didn't even speak the best. No, 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 <laughs> no, 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 I am French. I know, I know, I know. That you <laughs> he didn't say anything. No, no, no. Just uh, to show that this past two crises, either this energy and the COVID one, has actually been showing something that is national interest first. Uh, it has been very difficult to reach an agreement or certain specific agreements in the council, especially when the situation is harsher. And you can Which ones? For instance, in the beginning of the COVID crisis, we are not one to get track on that, but uh, everyone was fighting for themselves, was undermining their purchases on, on medical equipment, was not letting people pass. That's true. Uh, and uh, with the energy, is a little bit more what has been discussed here, by, especially by our fellow Julian, uh, on the the German national interest of going on its own. But I, I mean, but in a way, um, in a way, it has been shown, at least this past crisis, that Germany power is dwindling a little bit, especially with the military aggression that was, it was noticeable. And now with the energy, with the energy crisis, that is putting like a further strength on their economy. But it, it's, also, it's also, yes, and it's also a little bit uh, uh, easy to sit on the throne of the French position when, when for instance, when the Portugal and Spain had this uh, project that it was for long for Midcat? Yes, the Midcat, yeah. that was blocked. Okay, and that there, w- there is an alternative to connect Barcelona to, to Marseille to export gas, but the main issue is to export, for the French, the main issue is to export actually hydrogen which aligns with the priorities of the EU on greening and energy and stuff like that. But the issue is, since the beginning, uh, Germany was very keen on this project, especially because they could get from other sources the natural gas that they needed. And France knows this. Just, 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 <laughs> to, fin- just to finalize. Uh, so not only they undermine this possibility because they don't want gas to be further important, but... For the first time, this um, these days, France is shipping or is sending gas to Germany. So Germany is dependent on gas. Strategic was dependent on Russia, and now is dependent on the other EU partner slash competitor. So France actually really has a leverage on this. So it's very easy to say that, okay, Germans are playing on their own when France is actually trying to dictate all the rules by its own. So two points there. So Germany is reliant on France for gas right now, but 
if I'm not wrong, France is also still relying on Germany quite a lot for extra energy in general. But the one point that I would disagree on when it comes to mid-cats, I swear I'm not doing this just because I'm French. <laughs> I promise. But this, I read a report that for some reason got buried and it was in political or Euronews or something, I can't remember. But basically what was found out was that mid-cat wasn't actually viable. The Barcelona to Marseille uh, thing was more viable because mid-cat wouldn't have been operational for eight years. It would have taken eight years to get to that point. And the issue, at least from the French side, was getting the energy there as quickly as possible, which is why the Barcelona to Marseille thing was easier because that could be set up based on existing infrastructure, if I'm not wrong. And the Germans are pushing for this purely because they wanted more internal infrastructure when, in reality, it doesn't quite make sense. And there was also a complaint on the French side about the fact that Germany is refusing to keep the nuclear stations open, despite the fact that they're viable for a longer shelf life than they're allowing it to be purely because of internal coalition politics. And let's also not forget, most of the LNG terminals across Europe aren't being used at maximum capacity. There was no need to create additional uh, pipelines or additional terminals in general, because I think most of them are operating at between 15, 70%, or actually even lower, 40 to 60 or something. So they already have enough capacity to increase, especially in Germany. It, I mean, at least from where I was standing, even excluding the fact that I'm on the French side, it <laughs> felt like it was more of a, uh, a PR stunt to say, look at us, we are actually working with Europe, we're trying to make this thing happen. And let's also f not forget, we, it was initially not supposed to go to Germany, if I'm not wrong, it was supposed to be an Iberian and French initiative to solidify our positions. But I yeah. like how we came back to energy on this, though, which is... I mean, it, it's, it just shows how like how big of an issue this is for Europe going forward. And I, I think it's something that we need to keep an eye on at least for the next year or two. I mean, it's geopolitically existential. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And not only energy, uh, also critical raw materials, as we discussed, yes. uh, as we discussed last yeah. on the last. Yeah, but the, these are all um, the, the backbone of, um, of really, really hard power. Yeah. I mean, if you look at uh, any any great empire in uh, in history, the, the the number one most important thing was resource. Yeah. Back then, is it was different forms of resource. Sometimes, unfortunately, it was humans as well. Uh, but uh, the modern industrialized society is based on on this energy, um, oil, uh, fossil fuels, uh, gas. Uh, um, <sighs> It, it, it will take a bit of uh, of time for us to to readjust, but I think that's uh, that's the great thing about democracies that when they do agree, is then they they actually have the the, the full on momentum behind them to implement everything um, because they they agreed to it. Uh, you know, uh, keeping the garden blooming. Keeping the garden blooming, indeed. <laughs> smooth. Apart from the forest. Mm. Yes. The jungle, <laughs> the jungle, maybe. maybe. Yes, the jungle. I suppose, should we move on to the external dimensions then? Sure, we can, absolutely. Because I wanted to touch a little bit on this, because I thought it was funny, because Joseph Borrell gave a really strong speech, strong in the sense of strong-worded, attacking some of the e, uh, some of the you know external affairs happening around Europe, and compared, you know, Europe to the garden within the jungle of the world. 
do we have any thoughts on that? I know this is a bit more sensitive here and there, but uh, Julian, kick us up. What, what did you think of that statement? Are you I mean, pro or against the, the I, garden? <laughs> I get what he was saying. I do understand. The main unfortunate thing was that it unfortunately lined up with some very colonial undertones based on yeah. historical texts and statements. What he was saying, and we said something relatively similar about back gardens and front gardens last month. But it's yards, backyard, yes, yeah, sorry, no backyards, backyards. Yeah. <laughs> but it's um, it was. But I mean, what he was saying, and this is what I think caused a bit more drama, is that also he kind of called his diplomats lazy. He, but he, that was at another event. Was because, that a different speech? Yeah, yeah, was that, it? that was. I thought it was the same one. No, same no, no, no. Because uh, the speech about the garden and the and the jungle that was at a graduation ceremony, mm-hmm. and, oh. uh, and the, the the one that you're referring to was uh, actually with with all the diplomats. Um, but um, so he I gave mean, two bad speeches this month. He, he gave two speeches that garnered attention. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's put it that way. But he gives a lot of speeches, and uh, we give credit where credit is due. But um, <laughs> but uh, it's um, all right for for the second point that you made. Just uh, the point, not lazy, but he, he did call out his diplomats because he was right. He, he learned is, about yeah. things that he needed to know firsthand before anyone yeah. else knows it as the later. top, like uh, through the, the news. Yeah. Like that, if anything, undermines our global um, position, not position, but like the way that people, people inside and outside look at us yeah. as a European Union. And regarding the comment on the, um, on, um, on, on the garden and the jungle, I think... Uh, he he has had a chance since to uh, to to defend himself, and uh, certainly I, I I can't add uh, too much on on that. But I do just wanna wanna I think from from my perspective, personally, uh, the way that I look at it is when 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 things when times get really rough, they get things are tough, and and the situation that we find ourselves is um, is difficult. Um, let's call. Let's just say our, our our family, our community, our our immediate surrounding. Our all of a sudden, sorry, our neighborhood, our neighborhood <laughs> becomes um, closer. We we out of necessity, uh, existential and uh, instinctive due to survival, we are forced to be uh, closer to each other so that because it's it's easier to to survive. You have higher chances, and um, I think. From from that perspective, uh, perhaps the the words the the words had some uh, uh, may have been misinterpreted. But um, given the context that we are, I I too want uh, want Europeans to to prosper. And this yes. is n- nothing about people. I I want the whole world to prosper. But right now, whether we like it or not, Europe is at war. Yeah. And uh, and I think our, our immediate. Uh, Community and uh, and compatriots and uh, uh, citizens all across Europe um, need to be safe, uh, sound, warm uh, in the upcoming winter. And I think that's <laughs> back to energy. Uh, no, no, no. Um, but uh, I, I think that that's sometimes what uh, what we mean. And our our friends, f- friends, comma friends, comma and foes. We'll always find something to uh, to 
Yeah, to, to nitpick, you know, to, 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 really, to yes. latch and, on. And not just that, but even people um, internally, people that disagree on an individual, on an ideological, on a political level, but uh, sometimes also garnering... Uh, the, not bad attention, but like garnering attention means that you're doing something, uh, something good. Any any thoughts on that as well, Jao? Because no. I, I know you want to take this in, in no, some yeah, other direction yeah, too. Yes, no, no. Um, uh, since since the the first uh, the first speech, uh, our representative already had the chance to clarify himself at least what he wanted to say. So on his version, he was uh, pointing out the characteristics, or tried to point out in his explanation the characteristics that makes European Union this perfect garden, which I think we all here can relate to this, which is the political freedom, economic progress, and uh, social cohesion. And on his view, and I think it's it's a fact, most of the world, unfortunately, do not have the chance to have all of these three characteristics. So, uh, so he, and he then further added that uh, the European, European Union, in this case, uh, should not and could not revert to a fortress, so yeah. staying close to its own. Yeah. Uh, and uh, also that the European Union should not lose its compromise towards the rest of the world. Mm. This was uh, were the, its statements. But uh, catching up on the um, jungle side, because we've only been speaking to the, about the garden, mm. um, perhaps... Uh, this is try to understand this jungle side in our current international order. Perhaps it's uh, rapidly mutating into a multipolar one and potentially displaying uh, a little bit more of its treats of anarchy. Uh, this week I heard uh, from um, a former Finnish foreign minister uh, what he thought about what would be the next decade and how could we summarize uh, the, our international order with three C's, conflict, competition, and cooperation. Just anarchy is what uh, what states make of it as a great uh, mm-hmm. academic uh, once said. So there, there, there's always uh, opportunities and there's always uh, threats and risks, but it's really up to us uh, to, to make what we will of... Uh, of this and Europe has in no way um, hidden its intentions to support the the world, especially those countries that are underdeveloped when it comes to, to food insecurity, yeah. mm-hmm. when it comes to supporting uh, youth, for instance, very recently DG INPA, uh, uh, well, the commission uh, through the work of DG INPA proposed the EU Youth Action Plan, you know, in uh, external action and uh, we're also doing so much to 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 try to support uh, the the food insecurity that, by the way, is a hundred percent a result of Russia's unprovoked and unjustifiable aggression. Yeah, and I think this is a great way to segue into the European political community and kind of our ambitions in that arena. However, I want to take a brief, you know, lighter tone and and go into our annual or or you know monthly UK comedy moment and. Uh, what did we think of the? What did we think of our our, our neighbor? You know, <laughs> did we learn anything from Liz Truss's reign, which lasted almost as long as the intermission between the two podcasts? Can I can I swear? Go for it. So I think don't fuck with the market. Yeah. Uh, 
I mean, <laughs> well, that, 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 that's a good one. That's yeah. a good take. No, I, I would take from that experience, I would take two things that actually are important. Uh, first is that the era of cheap money is over. And that mm. was one mistake that her government committed. And second is um, if you actually want to be a liberal, at least act as one and do not pretend you are one. But did she want to be a liberal? That's she's the not thing. Liberal, yeah, she's not. She's but, that's, but that's the thing. Yeah. But she tried to promote, like, to try to pull off this spectacular uh, plan to recover her economy and shield the consumers from the gas prices. And uh, but without doing any type of reforms, she just she just wanted to get the money from the from the market. Of course, the market was expecting for it to come at least from some cuts on the on the national budget. Completely scared and bailed her out. <laughs> I mean, the issue, I mean, I think that this is a, like, when communism was proven to be an absolute disaster, I think this is the same thing for libertarianism, because it wasn't that she was trying to be a liberal, because I mean, liberal policies do work. We've seen that in Germany, we've seen that in the States, we've seen that in uh, France as well now, in the more social liberal form that we uh, push as a party. But it's, the problem was that Already people want to hold for her in the first place. Because let's, yeah. let's remember, it was a membership vote that she won by like 20% uh, in a very closed circus-like party that doesn't really make sense to anybody right now. And Who just came off an election that they barely won in the first place against yeah. Corbyn, of all people. Well, no, no, they, 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 they did they, well. They, they, well. They, they overperformed yeah. there. They, they did well. Wait. Yeah, but it's still so not resounding. I, no, it was one of no. the biggest gaps in uh, history. So no. having... <laughs> worked on the campaign for that election, having actually made the campaign plan that... The Corbyn one, huh? No, 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 no. I worked for Gina Miller during her Brexit stuff. But he, w Boris was expected to get 160. Our tactical voting campaign took him down to 81. And he kept hemorrhaging people as time went on. And I mean, you know, I mean, for right to the side, yeah. but... But the issue was that she very clearly tried to go for maximum growth, reduce investment into just about everything raise no lower taxes for the rich uh i'm those, are, I'm those are not liberal policies at all no exactly it's not liberal at all it's libertarian it's very much like make the state smaller make oh, that, that typical uh, typical neoliberal but, but the policies. thing that was uh, libertarian. somewhat yeah, 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 libertarian. I, I, I will say the idea of lowering tax by borrowing money is kind of liberal in some sense. No. <laughs> Increasing debt to lower tax is a, yeah. an interesting yeah, idea. Lower, lower, yes, lower tax for companies and stuff. No, but so, she's paying for a lower tax by borrowing money versus the state debt. How did she expect not that that not to feed uh, inflation? Like for, for yes. me, that's and and how did a chancellor sign off on that? That that to me, well, the, the the chancellor who everybody maybe chuckle at, who was nicknamed uh, Kamikwezi rather than kamikaze, wasn't a finance or an economics guy. He was put in place because Trust needed someone that she was friends with. And I think he was one of the co-authors on that weird book that her and a couple of the f her fellow ministers wrote 20 years ago about called Britain Unchained, which was some weird British libertarian manifesto that was written by all the people who aren't actually very good at politics in general and needed Brexit to come through to actually make it work, mm. in which they called the British people lazy and said they need to be forced to work harder. Fair enough. So it's like the, the mentality there was completely twisted in the first place. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I guess. I, so. I, I don't know. For for, for me, it's uh, um, it's quite a complex uh, 
I- issue yeah. if, if you really begin thinking about it. Because like this decision went through, and, and by the way, not that I have any personal preference, but uh, in, in, in the elections, uh, for the, for the leader of the Tory party which would become the the prime minister Rishi Sunak uh, mm-hmm. like clearly just uh, had said, a plan had no but he he exactly said what would happen yeah. if she did what she did and it did happen because like sometimes competence uh, is uh, is important I'm I'm not saying sometimes. That, uh, <laughs> just sometimes. <laughs> just sometimes, yes. Especially you know, when you are governing. Especially when you're at the highest uh, at the highest echelon of uh, of public administration okay. and uh, and political life. Absolutely, um, but uh, I I think so far we're the moves that uh, Sunak has made all point towards calming um, the, the finances and uh, and uh, the markets the. The sterling, and on top of that, he maintained the same foreign secretary, same defense, uh, uh, defense secretary. So and chancellor. yeah, and, and chancellor, yes, I, yes, I mean, yeah, exactly. And then he brought back the the previously sacked home secretary. So we are seeing uh, uh, a continuation of uh, of the UK internationally. So defense very important and. Uh, and um, and the foreign office, w- which has played a really big role, because it's Johnson true. was a very very big proponent of uh, defending the interests of uh, of Ukraine and uh, ge- mm. geopolitically. I mean, he he became a very big proponent. Yes, oh, after, yeah. but towards the end, he was uh, he was uh, giving quite a lot of uh, yes. But I will say just on that point because I agree with everything you said. Yeah. But on the point of Johnson being a huge proponent of Ukraine, he was a huge proponent of saving his own backside. Yeah. And every time something bad happened, this is, I promise you, go back in all the times when Johnson went to Kiev or did something for Ukraine. Every single time, it was because there was a massive scandal that was breaking out in the UK with either him or his government. And then he suddenly was like, oh, but Ukraine, Zelensky, let's go. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> I, 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 I am recognizing your point. But also we need to recognize the amount of uh, weapons and money that yeah. Uh, yeah, sure. that were given. Personally, I'm not even going to get into into his ideology and his views. But on paper, uh, the UK has been uh, has been providing a lot of uh, yeah, weapons. Sure. It's, ju- it's just good support. to have so many scandals, right? Uh, <laughs> really help boost actually, those yeah. numbers. <laughs> but I mean, yeah. I, at this point, like um, I, I, I think people people understand. But but also. At what point do we begin discussing about uh, the mandate of 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 um, of a government? Well, at mm. which point are we talking about elections for a government that's changed something like I don't know twenty times in seven months? You know, I don't know. That's that's internal politics, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> how you but push that away? <laughs> maybe just uh, that, that, that we have not been discussing. Uh, <laughs> yes, <laughs> should we switch a bit more externally then from our UK comedy moment and talk about? something a bit more serious, as these serious people in this serious picture would like to attest to. Um, the European political community, which saw its birth, I suppose official birth, you know, this month. C- can I just make a point that will connect and bridge essentially our previous point to this Please point? do that. Apparently, so the, the European political community summit took uh, place at a time when uh, apparently uh, Liz Truss had, uh, had a question 
uh, looming large on her conscience about whether, in fact, Macron is a friend or a foe of the UK. Maybe, Julien, you can uh, you can help us answer that question and finally put her conscience to rest. Uh, but but he's already asking Macron. <laughs> um, but uh, so apparently, I read that um, she was very very firm on the fact that uh, she didn't want any EU flags at the summit and she didn't really want high-level European officials uh, let's say mingling about at uh, at, at the summit uh, which is not understandable at least from uh, my perspective given that uh, who are we looking at Julia? You can actually say she's she sat stood at the complete opposite side from von der Leyen and is that Borel? Yes and Michel is uh, just on the yeah. left or right depending on where mm. you are yeah, no, so actually that's a good point. She's just trying to stay as far away from the Europeans as possible. Yes, and uh, really the highest echelons um, of EU uh, leadership. But I honestly, I have to say, I, I didn't exactly know what to expect when this whole uh, EPC uh, um, summit and this whole community was... Um, I agree. ...was, was developed. Yeah. Like, I, I was thinking to myself, is this the, the beginning of... To speed Europe, are we um, are we beginning to to create something bigger than Europe? Is this a way of integrating countries that are finding the, the difficulties and hurdles in yeah. uh, becoming EU member states? Um, but I I think that it answered my my questions to a very large uh, um, extent. I don't know what what you guys will think, but uh, in my opinion, it um, it is a little bit of a of a forum. I think it's absolute necessity, the way I saw it, is not to to find uh, always solutions, but the fact that all these people can gather around at a, at a single place, at a singular moment in time, every once in a while, and discuss really pressing European issues. Uh, because sometimes, for instance, if it's the EU27, um, the UK uh, may not be a part of the table or some other countries that are really, really uh, important for some decisions in not even in our wider neighborhood in our in our in our continent in our continent um, so this provides I think um, a forum where we can all agree and um, or disagree you know sometimes that is also important to develop uh, to develop yeah. an understanding for what we want or what what um, we don't want but uh, I have to say I'm I'm quite uh, quite supportive of it because we have uh, countries such as Albania, um, given given for instance uh, a position at the at the table, which is it's good to have uh, to have these voices heard. Just because some countries are, are not yet uh, uh, members of the EU or not yet candidates, does not mean that uh, their view is uh, is unimportant. We need to take yeah. everyone's perspective, not just as an EU as, a, as an EU entity, but as as, as Europe, because yeah. ultimately, isn't that uh, maybe not in the short term, but in the long term, isn't the goal of uh, of the EU to try to to unite the the continent? Yeah, because when it was announced too, I shared your bit of confusion in a sense, and I mean, exactly like reinforced today when I was looking it up. And when you Wikipedia it, it says like European uh, political whatever. 2020 version which really shows how much it like thinks of the format in itself but i do agree i think there is some use to having this kind of political forum in a sense 
I'm, I'm interested to hear what the other side of the table has to say about this, though. Uh, you know, no, it's always important to have people and, and countries uh, together. Uh, but I mean, is another forum with yet no deliverables? True. That's the issue. Because it's not it's not the first time that, for instance, the French try. This is not uh, the first attempt that they have a uh, to this to this type of. We uh, like communities. Yes. <laughs> like yeah, yeah, I know, but and you do, and you do, yeah, <laughs> and you. And, uh, and yeah, you, you, li- you like that. And, uh, yeah, and uh, like for instance, I just can recall the, the initiative of Mitterrand and also in 2008 Sarkozy with the Union for the Mediterranean, which actually was like a forum with, between the EU and the Mediterranean neighbors that led to, no, to nowhere. Um, so, and when, when this was launched, it was like stated by the French, prime, by the, um, French president that this would provide to democratic European nations, uh, quote, uh, that have shared core values to cooperate on a variety of subject, subjects such as security, energy, and free movement of people. Okay, to this point, okay, it's a larger uh, forum, so it brings other countries. Uh, some of them actually that traditionally can be perceived as uh, in the Russian sphere of influence. But uh, t- touching on the specific points like security, uh, can we actually talk about security in Europe without the US at this point? This is my first question, Mark. Point. But that forum so is NATO, for hey, instance. Wait, wait, wait. Yeah, no, no, what? That forum is NATO. Without the US. No, no, no. But, but what I mean is they, they have this. They have this forum and they want to talk about security. Can we talk about security in Europe without the US? Yeah. In my, pers- my personal opinion, at this point, no. In the future, if we have a discussion on the European, for instance, the European single army or something like this. Yes, we could discuss on that. <laughs> but, the issue, but the issue here is, again, this is to talk about security in Europe without talking about the US is a French lead initiative of taking the US out. And a very good idea. <laughs> that, that, that would be a talk, an interesting topic for another discussion. And uh, also energy. Is it fruitful to speak about this within this type of forum that brings to know the liberals or should we do it within the framework of the European Union with other countries being it multilateral or bilaterally? This is mm. another question. It's a good critic. Again, uh, free movement of people. What is going to be discussed here? I mean, they are going to easy up the visas. Yeah. Are they going to, uh, I don't know, uh, make some amendments to, Cheng- to Schengen uh, area and allow uh, other countries to join? It's unclear. So... Sum it up, it's, it's a forum that is, in a way, can be perceived as a little bit too big. It has no clear agenda. It has already have, like, building on past experience that didn't go well, like the, the Union for the Mediterranean that I already spoke. And nowadays, uh, there are some countries that perceive this as exactly like French-led initiative. For instance, the UK. Uh, and they actually greet that. That's why, in my perspective, she didn't want, the Prime Minister didn't want to have any European, European Union flags. It's not only just because of the Brexit thing, but because it is being deal, it's been easier for her, or on her perspective, for this community to continue. And since it's, uh, it's perceived as French uh, lead, for them to try, yeah, them, the UK, to try to influence and actually control the agenda, rather than if it was the European Union. Uh, and now so there are some countries that are actually getting a little bit uneased on this situation because the Western Balkans, for instance, they have been stalled their uh, entry to the European Union for 
a long time. And they perceive this as a, I don't know, as you put it, like a potential possibility of uh, two speeds integration. I don't know. And uh, also, of course, we have this situation of um, Turkey. I mean, it's important for us to have dialogue with Turkey. We already discussed this in the, the last uh, panel. But do we share that much values with Turkey nowadays with the new Ottoman power that has been holding the European Union by ransom? I have to say Greece did question the participation of Turkey uh, I know, I know. in the EPC. Absolutely. I know. But for you... Uh, for you guys not to say that I'm just uh, uh, <laughs> slamming the the community I have one nice takeaway that is uh, at least he managed to reapproach Armenia and Azerbaijan in the sense that the two presidents actually met they, they weren't present in the same uh, Fair enough. in the same forum and I think that's one of the Armenia Azerbaijan that's one of the, the things that we forgot about this year as a as a block I suppose but mm. Julian I mean, you, you seemed a bit ready to engage a few I'm times, to say the least. <laughs> Oops, uh, no, I mean, we need to kind of put it into perspective. And like you said, there seem to have been almost two different versions of the EPC, where initially, I mean, the way I always read it was that we've had a decade of complaints about the lack of movement on EU accession for a lot of the Balkan states, especially recently with the move towards, you know, giving candidacy to Moldova and uh, Ukraine, which, uh, and well, eventually maybe, but it even got to give us a few real prime Edirama moments in, over in Albania, where he gave some very fun speeches to just about everybody. But it initially it seemed to me like it was going to be almost a replacement for the European neighborhood, because currently the European neighborhood is quite dated. Obviously, with Brexit, we now have a northern neighborhood, which includes the UK. The eastern neighborhood has changed quite a lot. The southern neighborhood, does it really make sense? Does it not? Who knows really at this point? But I mean, with now with energy, it's more important than yes, ever, no? But the neighborhood system was more about bringing people closer, and it's been shown that it, aside from a few token initiatives and cooperation that can be done outside of it, it doesn't really, at least on the southern side, achieve the goals that it wants to do. But it then became what seems to me to have been almost a uh, a United Nations of Europe summit where you brought all of these states together to engage in workshops, bilaterals, general meetings and conversations. And I think this was the real value of this because I remember seeing a lot of pictures and videos of these workshops that were being done with different groups of national leaders, which is useful because I mean, we sometimes forget that sometimes... If we're talking about solutions at the European Union level, sometimes 27 people is too big and you don't have the space or the... So 48 will yes, help. So 44. No, 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 or 44, no, 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 sorry. In smaller working groups, it's easier to sort of workshop out some solutions. I think about how we do workshops in the European institutions. Yeah, the, the council works like that. There's like the, yeah. the council working parties, yeah. the technical yeah, level, yeah, where, exactly. where these kind of discussions can occur. Yeah, and we can get this uh, input from countries who may have a closer, a better knowledge of, you know, gas and oil at the source, like the states from well, the Caucasus. You know. Just uh, what I mean is, uh, and maybe you pointed out, with, and I agree, maybe the neighbor neighborhood policy is a little bit outdated, but should we shouldn't we be focusing on perhaps reforming it and make it up to date than actually being investing on a forum? Because very what? quickly, I 
yes and yes like yes we need to reform a lot of things uh, that uh, that currently may not be functioning to the uh, to the optimal level of uh, Pareto efficiency uh, within the EU but at the same time if you just think about it more from let's say a social perspective of leadership the fact that you have the 44 leaders plus uh, uh, plus von der Leyen plus uh, Michel people that deal with the highest echelon of EU legislation people that are the the most influential political uh, individuals in uh, in their own respective countries the fact that they're together in one room like you said Armenia and Azerbaijan it would have been mm. I think difficult to get them to, to I don't know if, if uh, Chancellor Schwartz or President Macron had said uh, I'm inviting these two uh, the leaders of these two countries here to discuss that. Whereas they went to the summit um, under the guise of the summit and there they were able to hold, I, I believe, two meetings, yeah. uh, which um, just the fact that they were in the same uh, room discussing whatever the, uh, the, the efficacy of the outcome may have been is very, very important because that's also the first step of uh, just... Talking is the first step to uh, to to peace. And uh, just to add to that point, we also need to add that we've. I, I get what you mean about you know maybe we don't need to do this whole new EPC thing. You know, there's maybe other ways. But let's also remember where we were mid last uh, decade, where everyone was saying you know nothing's really working, nothing's really going anywhere. We can't really make any reforms, etc., etc. And you know. Again, maybe I'm slightly biased, but we've at least got now actors in von der Leyen, Macron, and at the point Draghi was still around, I think, where they've just gone, look, you know, things aren't working. Okay, let's try a different way. Let's reform the accession process and change the Yaki, not the Yaki, but, you know, the uh, checklist. Okay, we're not able to converse with everybody properly through the forums you've already got. Why don't we get everybody in Europe together and get them into a room and chat together? I mean, it may not work, it may not be perfect, but at least we're making initiatives to actually find solutions to these issues. Because if we have these complaints from everybody saying that things aren't working or they're too slow, we, I think we need to maybe stay more positive when we're looking at things that could actually make breakthroughs. And like you said, would the uh, Azerbaijani and Armenian leaders have met if it weren't for this conference and Macron didn't basically drag them into a room two times? Probably not. But we've at least had some solutions to issues and they seem to have worked out. And I believe the energy price cap and even some sourcing issues were actually resolved in this as well. That's optimistic, I suppose. Yeah, 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 I'm not going to comment this to that. I think your last point or your second to last point is a good way to kind of wrap it up where at least we're moving in a direction. We're moving forward. We're proposing new things. We're not sitting around and waiting for the world to move around us. We're taking some leadership more and there, here and there, to really push forward the European agenda, the European values, the European approach. And I think that is cause for optimism. And I know you've played devil's advocate, Zhao, a few times. I enjoyed that today. And Thank you. with the more yeah. positive people beside you. And I'm, I'm curious to hear, as we wrapped up last time, what's the one word we'd use to describe this month? I can go first. I'd say tense. Because I know it seemed like a month that went by quickly, but I felt like at each moment, 
there were so many issues which could explode into something bigger. And I feel like it's building up to something, some kind of conclusion or finale, which I don't want to see. But it's it's going on, you know. It's it's tense, I suppose. But maybe that's my unprofessional opinion. Um, I would go with uh, tenacity. I think uh, we need to to continue on this uh, difficult uh, uh, road and in this difficult context that we're in, and uh, we should not uh, relent. We should continue yeah. pushing for solutions on energy. We should con- continue our 100% support for Ukraine militarily, financially, in humanitarian aid, and so on and so forth. Continue uh, strong uh, transatlantic uh, cooperation and continue standing up for our rights uh, and our values. Absolutely. Tenacious. Can't disagree with that. Can you I disagree w- with that? I, <laughs> would go, I would go for geopolitics. Ooh. Ooh. Taking the textbook, I see. Yes, no, because I think everything, every subject that we touch here, it's deeply rooted on geopolitic issues. And uh, it, for me, at least, it was something that I really liked to comment and to actually have this wonderful panel uh, with me. I think it was really, really interesting. And I think geopolitics are here to stay and we are going to touch even further on the next month. Good way to wrap that up. Julian, you have the final substantive word. I would say turbulent. Honestly, because we've seen a lot of friction internally and externally. We've seen a lot of fighting across the board. And there's been a lot of... It's been a bumpy month, honestly, internally within the union, with the EPC and the surrounding discussions, with Borel uh, talking about his uh, garden and the jungle around it. And... Also, just with the internal combating, like the whole Germany France thing has gotten a lot of people very nervous. Even though it's this happens like once every two or three years, you know, it's like but it's it's my first yeah. time being in a cycle, so coming some slack. It happened with France and Italy last year, I believe, as well. Where yeah. did, did did Macron also went as far as to recall the ambassador? Oh no, it wasn't last year. Italy. This was when Salvini was the premier, I think. Yeah, I, I recall that this happened. So yeah. it, it happens. Yes. The question is, if it happens often, does it ap- happen over vital interest? I'm trying to wrap up this podcast oh. here, Zhao. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> and month. on the next episode. <laughs> uh, but you finished your thought? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, I think that means we've also finished this podcast in a sense. Any plans for our longer break coming up, people? Final de- vacation destination stuff? I'm heading to Lille. Making Leo, second nice. time in France, which... Second time in France. I don't know how I feel about that. Where was the other place you went? Paris, of okay. course. Paris. <laughs> oh, original. Very uh, much. Uh, yeah. I'm actually going to my mom's um, birthplace to Crete uh, to help my family pick olives to make olive oil. Uh, nice. Sweet. Very Can nice. anybody beat that? Jao, no, nice. you're sticking no, I'm around. Going, I'm going to stay here in Brussels. Someone needs to take care of the business, right? <laughs> Someone needs to read the newspaper. We prepare and I the thank next you session. for that, Jao. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm with uh, Jao on this. I'm just going to be here for the long uh, run. Well, we'll all be sure to keep you entertained. And we'll hopefully check back with you next time. Um, I think we're going to plan to do, if we're all still up for it, we'll plan to do uh, the top headlines of 2022 and kind of rank them and see what comes out top, what comes out bottom, and see how that goes if you listen to the audio versions as well you might want to check out the midterm review we didn't touch about it at all here although i promised it so more uh, more fuel to check out the episode coming up uh, 
I think end of this week, end of next week. Um, and yeah, I think it should be pretty neat. So thanks for listening in. Catch you later. And thank you all for the guests as well. So thank, thank you, you for having us. Thank you for having us. That wraps it up.